Well, it would be good if you had uh, that passage from Galatians chapter 3 open in front of you. Uh, We will be focusing on verses 10 to 14 uh, this evening. Um, But as we do, it's always a very good thing to establish uh, the context of a a passage and and where it finds itself in God's word as we seek to apply it to our own lives. Um, So we'll we'll do that uh, first for those of you who are perhaps unfamiliar with the book of uh, Galatians. Um, It's an epistle, it's a letter um, to... Um, a people, the Galatians. Um, Galatia was an area, a region, found in modern-day Turkey. And so uh, it's a place that would have been inhabited by a, a large group of people, uh, and probably in all likelihood um, a very diverse population um, of uh, both Jews and Gentiles uh, at the time. Uh, Paul had travelled extensively throughout Galatia. He was very familiar with the area. He'd spent time visiting and teaching in many of the churches there, and so would have known uh, many of the believers. And uh, no doubt, in fact, he would have been instrumental in proclaiming and establishing the gospel uh, in this area. Um, And as with many of Paul's epistles, he's writing to address a specific problem. He's dealing with a specific issue. And uh, not long after the Galatians had accepted the gospel not long after they had been uh, instructed. It appears that agitators had come in amongst them and um, had sown seeds of discord and attacked Paul himself personally, as, again, we often see is the case. Uh, We read about that in in chapter 4. They'd begun to preach a distorted gospel. Um, Again, Paul makes that clear in chapter 1. Verses 6 to 7. Their gospel, the agitators that had had come in, their gospel required circumcision for salvation. And um, undoubtedly, given the context of that, uh, Paul doesn't uh, name individual names, but given the context of that, they were undoubtedly Jewish Christians from Jerusalem. And their argument to the Galatians uh, was was like this. Well, since you, the Galatians, are, are Gentiles, you're uncircumcised and since you're uncircumcised you you must be circumcised as well as believing in Jesus Christ for salvation Um, and no doubt the agitators that Paul is is dealing with in this letter this this epistle um, were not just intent on proclaiming their own brand of the gospel but but they were seeking to undo the works of the apostle Paul Uh, they were seeking to undo all that he had proclaimed in making clear to the Galatians that their only need was Jesus. Um, So much like um, many of his other letters, Paul finds himself under attack, and more importantly, he finds the gospel under attack. Uh, So in chapter 1, he spends a good uh, amount of time defending his own authority as an apostle, as somebody who had experienced um, and encountered the risen Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, in chapter 2, he defends the confrontation that he has with Peter, um, the very well-known well uh, confrontation that we find in Acts, um, as Peter uh, struggles with these things. Uh, and so we get to chapter 3, the context is Paul laying out uh, the centrality of the gospel to the Galatians. And the first thing I want us to consider uh, this evening 
is a defence rooted in Scripture. Um, Although Paul is personally uh, attacked and and has to defend his own character, defend his own authority, he isn't defending himself primarily. He's defending the gospel and he's doing so by rooting his defence in Scripture. We read in verse 10, For all who rely on works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. So that uh, springs a question into our mind, of course, doesn't it? Well, as it is written, where is it written? Under what authority is Paul um, making this statement? Well, this quote comes directly from Deuteronomy chapter 27. And in Deuteronomy chapter 27, we have the story of the people of God crossing the River Jordan as they prepare to enter uh, the Promised Land. And something amazing happens as they, as they do this. They found themselves in a great valley, split in two by two mountains. And they commanded six of the tribes to ascend to the top of Mount um, Gerizim on one side. And the other six tribes were commanded to stand on Mount Ebal on the other side. And they were commanded to worship the Lord. But this um, event that we we can read about in Deuteronomy chapter 27 that, that Paul is referencing here was a particular and a specific form of worship. It wasn't just an open time of singing. Uh, Sometimes we might do that, maybe in days gone by, a fellowship lunch, we might just have a, not spontaneous, but almost just an open time of singing and and, uh, enjoy uh, fellowship through through singing together. It wasn't that. Uh, Nor were they called to this valley to sort of form a a great amphitheatre that would generate brilliant acoustics and it would be a great sound amongst the peoples. Uh, Again, uh, at times that is called for, but that's not what, that is not what is happening in Deuteronomy chapter 27. Rather, the two sides of the tribes were called to cry out to the Lord. And they were to do so responsibly, one side and then the other. They were called, uh, on the one side, on Mount uh, Gerizim, they were called to bless the people of God. And those on Mount Ebal were called to curse the people. Now imagine the scene. Imagine standing there in the midst of that great valley with two mountains, a mountain on either side, six tribes of Israel on the one side, six on the other. This great uh, congregation of people crying out to the Lord. Blessings and curses. We, we can read a, a few verses from it. I, I won't read the whole uh, the chapter or, or the whole section uh, for time, but um, just to read a few verses so we can get a, a taster of it. From verse 15. Cursed be the man who makes a carved or cast metal image, an abomination to the Lord, a thing made by the hands of craftsmen, and sets it, and sets it up in secret. And all the people shall answer and say, Amen. Cursed be anyone who dishonors his father and his mother, and all the people shall say, Amen. Cursed be anyone who moves his neighbor's landmark, and all the people shall say, Amen. And so on, and so on, until we get to verse 26. Cursed be anyone who does not confirm the words of this law by doing them. And all the people shall say, Amen. 
But what does this passage in Deuteronomy chapter 27 um, have to do with Paul? Why is he quoting in the midst of a letter to a people who are finding themselves uh, conflicted and confused by agitators? Why does Paul reference this, uh, this event from Deuteronomy? Even more so, what, what relevance does that have to us today here in St. Melons? Why, why do we need to read these verses? Why do we need to understand what Paul is saying? Well, Paul knew these curses. He knew them intimately. He was intimately familiar with them. How, how, how was he familiar with these verses? Ah, maybe you're thinking, well, I know that one. I know that answer. Um, Paul, before his encounter with the Lord Jesus Christ, was a, was a great scholar. Uh, he was a, a man of the law. He was an eminent Jewish scholar. He knew the, the law inside and out. Well-trained, a Jew of Jews, as he described himself. That's why it's so familiar to him. Well, that is true, but actually there's more than that. There's a deeper reason as to why Paul, in the midst of this, um, uh, this condemnation of the agitators, in the midst of um, defending the gospel and defending um, the centrality of the gospel, there's a deeper reason that Paul's familiarity with these curses matter. Because he was experientially familiar with them. What do I mean by that? He experienced the taste of these curses. He experienced them in a physical and a deliberate and an excruciating manner. Because as we read the story of Paul uh, through the book of Acts, the, uh, the, the, the second half latterly of, of Acts, we read that for all of his gospel work, Paul paid a price. He paid a great price in many ways and in many occasions. And on five of those occasions, that price was a physical um, payment that he made. For preaching the gospel, proclaiming the good news of the Lord Jesus Christ, he had received punishment. We read about that in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 24. Five times I received at the hands of the Jews the 40 lashes less one. He had been lashed five times. And during this punishment... As each lash rained down upon his back for the crime of proclaiming the gospel, the curses of the law would have been read out. And so on five occasions, Paul had received alongside his final lash the words, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. He was intimately familiar with these curses. And this last curse is a solemn curse because it's a reminder of the standard of God. It's a reminder of his perfect standard. It's a reminder that from the very beginning of time, God has required nothing less than total obedience. And it's a standard for all of humanity. It's not just for the Jewish people. It's not just for the Gentiles. It's not just for a particular race or a particular nation. It is for all of humanity. God's standard 
is perfect and it is universal. And not only must humanity keep God's law, we must continue to keep it and keep it fully and keep it with gladness and delight. And this is a powerful and an important doctrinal truth at the very heart of the gospel. And this is why Paul is um, using this quote within this epistle. Because it centers on our view of justification. That is exactly what Paul is dealing with here. And it's exactly what the agitators were um, getting wrong and were provoking the young believers in Galatia. And it's the reason that it's so important for us to deal with these verses today in St. Melons in 2021. Because the central truths of the gospel are as true today as they were yesterday. And as true as they were as Paul wrote them. It requires the, that most important of questions. What or how can I be made right before God? And that's what Paul is dealing with here. Uh, and, and that's what we're dealing with this evening. So I've got three more subsequent points for us to go through, uh, uh, through these verses with a little bit of uh, brevity to, to show how Paul uses um, God's word as he uh, lifts uh, passages of scripture to proclaim the central truths of the gospel. Uh, in verse 10, he does that first um, by pointing out how all those who rely on the works of the law are under a curse. It's true to say then that without exception, everyone is condemned by the curse of the law. And if that is true, well, why would anyone ever try to base their salvation upon keeping it? Because that is the, the issue that these Galatian Christians were facing. They were being told, yes, Jesus Christ, but you also must keep the law in its fullness. Well, if being condemned by the curse of the law, why would you ever seek to try and keep it in its fullness for your salvation? That's exactly what Paul is saying here. Because what the agitators who were stirring up trouble in, in Galatia were doing was they were trying to say to, to, to the Christians, the gospel isn't enough. You need the gospel plus. You need Jesus Christ crucified plus. And such a people, such a people who rely on the works of the Lord, ultimately... Whether they realise it or not, whether they proclaim it or not, ultimately such people who rely on works of the law are people who seek to be accepted on their own merits. That's the underlying truth. Whether acknowledged or not, that's what's really happening. They're people who want the ledgers of their own lives to be compared to God's standard and say, no, I've done enough. I've done enough good. I've kept the law. My ledger is full. They expect to be justified by God because of the goodness within them. But remember the purpose of the law. The purpose of the law was never to make us good. 
When we talk about the law, we, we can talk about it in, in a multifaceted ways. But if we talk about the Ten Commandments being given to the people of Israel, it's not like at that point, as Moses um, uh, brought down the Ten Commandments and they were laid clear to, to the people, that at that point they went, oh, right, okay, that's how we live then. It wasn't that that was all of a sudden um, a tick list that they could then refer to. No, the law, the purpose of the law is to show us who we really are. It's a mirror that shows us and reflects our hearts. And so in citing Deuteronomy uh, 27 and in pointing the Galatians and pointing those agitators who were stirring up trouble to the curses of the law, Paul is pointing to the universal truth that those relying on the works of the law are under a curse. Because the law demands that it is fully and completely kept. And he wrote those words in in verse, verse 10, for all who rely on works of the law are under a curse. He wrote those and and in doing so dealt with the agitators and enemies of of the gospel in order to proclaim the centrality of justification by faith alone. That it is not a gospel plus works. Paul is seeking to deal head on with a man-centered view which rejects the truth of the gospel. Because ultimately, as Paul opens this up and that's why we read the first nine verses of, of chapter three, to, to understand the context of this passage. Um, ultimately, we know that the Bible teaches us that no one could ever possibly keep the law in its fullness. Uh, there are those who think that they can. We see a few people who encounter Jesus and, and believe that they keep the law. Think of the rich young ruler who believes that he, he in fact does keep the law, uh, that he has never sinned until Jesus points to his greatest need, and that is his heart. Well, ultimately, there is no one, not one, who can be accepted by God through the law. Because it can never fully and wholly uh, be kept by us. That is exactly what we read about in James chapter 2. James writes on a similar theme. Whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become accountable for all of it. It is impossible to keep God's perfect Law in a full and a perfect manner. And it was that curse that, that Paul is referring to here that, that shouted from uh, Mount Ebal. And it's a curse which exposes within us a very sad and a powerful truth that we know and we understand. And that is that we are all sinners. That we're all lawbreakers. We're all rebels. We're all living in rebellion against God's law. And even... Those amongst us who consider themselves to be good law keepers ultimately fail. Therefore, the way we need to listen to to this message, we need to read the book of of Galatians, we need to understand these verses, is with a heart that seeks to self-examine ourselves and to see ourselves for who and what we really are. Uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 13 verse 5 says this, Examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. Or do you not realise this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you, unless indeed you fail to meet the test? Well, Christians here today, before we move on uh, to the next few verses, Christians here today, 
Is that your experience? Is that your experience in your, in your walk? Are you seeking to examine yourself daily? Are you seeking uh, to have, uh, as, as we would nowadays say, have an honest conversation with yourself? Do you look at your own heart in the light of God's word? Well, previously uh, in, in chapter 3, verses 1 to 5, as we see Paul dealing with some of those ag- agitators who are causing trouble and causing uh, unrest, um, we see that they've said that, look, it's okay. It's okay to, to start the Christian life by faith. But, but ultimately, there comes a point in your life, Galatians, where you've got, to, you've got to do things for yourself. It's good to start with Jesus, but after a while, you need to, you need to start doing works. Well, for the believer, for for somebody who has been saved uh, by grace, uh, we know that that is not true. We know that there is a a command for us to do good works. That there ought to be a desire within us to do good things and to follow God's law and to to keep it to the, the best that we can and to delight in God's law. But we know that that is not the same as securing our salvation. And Paul is saying in these verses that, look, it it, it can't be done. The God who who goes on supplying the Spirit and working miracles in the believer, who changes a heart of stone into a heart which loves the Lord, does so by faith, and not only by works of the law. And so verse 10 um, confirms this incredible doctrinal truth of justification by faith alone with these stark words. If you start with faith and then shift over to works of law, you are going to be under a curse. It is by faith alone. Now, believing and doing when it comes to the law are actually mutually exclusive things. But as we see in uh, verse 11, now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law for the righteous shall live by faith. There ought to be a desire within us to love the law of God. We cannot live by faith and live by works at the same time for our salvation. Um, A a little illustration that uh, I think is helpful for this. I don't know if you've ever been punting in your life. Uh, I spent a summer in Cambridge um, a long time ago, 10 or 12 years ago, working with a church, working with international students. And one of the things that we did there was, was go punting, um, which if you don't, it sounds strange if you don't know what it is. It's going along a river in a, a very small boat uh, with a big stick, and, and you push the stick into the ground and uh, uh, propel yourself along. Um, now, if you're not very good at that, or if you're like me, somebody who's quite prone to hazard, uh, what can hap- <coughs> happen that when you plant the, the stick in the, the ground, you haven't planted it securely. And so, by the virtue of your force, you're able to push off, but, but it's not a secure push. And so you end up in a position where you're in the boat, but your body weight is transferred to the stick, and you can imagine what happened on a daily basis. Well, faith and works is like that. It's like a man who's got one foot in a boat, and the other foot... Um, perhaps on, on, on the dock. Um, I, I'm, not a, I'm not a great boats person. Um, but as the boat starts to push away, uh, you can't keep one foot on the dock and one foot on the boat, can you? Uh, if you do, 
um, you find yourself quickly needing to make a decision. Either you have to hop back onto the dock or you have to hop back, uh, hop onto the boat or else you'll end up uh, in the water. Faith and works, uh, as it pertains to our salvation, are mutually exclusive. And Paul illustrates that point, as we just read in verse 11, by quoting again from the Old Testament, this time from the book of Habakkuk, where he says, Now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law, for the righteous shall live by faith. Uh, That's found in, in the book of Habakkuk. And those words that Habakkuk writes are used in condemnation of the Babylonians who are full of pride and, and conceit, having conquered Jerusalem and taking, taking the Israelites into captivity. They were a victorious people, but they weren't a righteous people. And so when Habakkuk writes to them, uh, he is condemning them for their pride. They, they hadn't trusted in God, um, and they hadn't given him the glory and the honour due to his name. Uh, they trusted in themselves, and they glorified themselves. You see, it's not self-sufficiency that characterises our relationship with God. Uh, We live in a modern world that really values self-sufficiency and a do-it-yourself attitude. But self-sufficiency does not characterise our relationship with God. Living by faith characterises our relationship with God. As Habakkuk says, the righteous shall live by faith. Paul isn't saying to to, to the believers here, the righteous shall live by trying their very, very best. The righteous shall live by following the law. No, the righteous shall live by faith. And such living uh, by faith requires a response, verse 12. The law is not of faith, rather the one who does them shall live by them. And the words of the great reformer Martin Luther who this, this doctrine of justification by faith was a great watershed moment in his life, we know. He, he said this as he um, sort of wrestled with these verses and as he sought to explain uh, God's uh, way of justifying sinners. He said these words, If you wish to placate me, um, do not offer me your works and merits, but believe in Jesus Christ, my only Son, who was born, who suffered, who was crucified, and who died for your sins then I will accept you and pronounce you as righteous. That is that Martin Luther summing up a God's view of justifying sinners. I will accept you and then pronounce you as righteous. Uh, the second brief thing that uh, I want us to consider from these verses as we come to a close is this. Verse 13. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law. And verse 13 is a reminder of, of the penalty that we see mentioned in, in verse 10. Uh, The penalty of the law is is the wrath of God. Uh, And the wrath of God is is the curse of the law. They're entwined. And so in order for somebody to be justified by God, uh, works are not sufficient. In order for someone to be justified by God, the curse must be removed. And that is why Paul puts our attention onto these verses. He's saying before you can deal with your justification, you have to understand what the law is. You have to understand the curse of the law. And this is Christ's purpose in being crucified on the cross. To redeem his people in a way only he could. Now Paul knew that he himself stood underneath a a curse. 
He knew that very well for all the years that he had devoted himself to legalistic law-keeping. He knew very well that he stood underneath, underneath the curse. He said in, in Philippians um, chapter 3 uh, that from a legalistic standpoint, he'd been bl- uh, blameless. But he knew in his heart that that wasn't the case. He knew that he'd excelled in his zealness for the law and for uh, the manner in which he, he delighted in, in keeping it. But he knew that that wasn't sufficient for his salvation. He knew that his knowledge of the law, all the years of training that he'd had, all the honours perhaps that had come his way, meant nothing because he had been under a curse. What hope is there for anybody who seeks to bribe the living God with the works of their life? What hope is there in that? That's what the, uh, Paul is saying to the Galatians as, as they seek to, uh, to deal with these agitators who are, who are telling them you need works. See, what, what possible hope is there for anybody who seeks to look at the living God and say, well, look, look at what I've done. Look how, look how great I am. Look how, uh, how I've kept your law. There is no hope for such a person. There is no hope against God's perfect standard. If they try and hold themselves and they hold their law law keeping up against God, there is no hope. Unless, we see in verse 13, unless God, according to his grace, is willing to transfer that sentence of death to another. That is the impact that Paul is seeking to, to have with verse 13. Now, over the next few months, uh, Dave mentioned this morning, we're going to be having uh, a Monday morning, uh, Monday? Not a Monday morning, a Sunday morning uh, series on encounters with Christ as we we started off uh, this morning. We're going to see in different ways and different uh, people who encounter Christ. Well, I'm sorry, I'm going to to be a bit of a spoiler right now for that. We're going to have uh, some hopefully really encouraging uh, preaching coming from that, but I've got to, to give a spoiler right now. If you know what a spoiler is, you know what a spoiler is. Like if you're watching a television program and you've not caught up and you don't want it to be spoiled, well, I'm sorry, I can't. I can't leave this for you to catch up on. This needs to be spoiled because the heart of the gospel, the heart of the gospel that Paul is proclaiming, that we as a church here in St. Melons seek to proclaim, the heart of the gospel is that the Lord Jesus Christ, who knew no sin was made to be sin for us. So that we, the sinful, might become the righteousness of God. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21. Jesus was not guilty of a single moment of legalism. He wasn't guilty of, um, uh, of conceit with the law, seeking to proclaim to other people how he kept the law uh, beyond other things because uh, he was keeping a tally sheet like we see with some of the, the, the Pharisees. He trusted his father perfectly and he lived a life of perfection. He fulfilled the law perfectly in every way and in every capacity because he knew that the root of the law was all about the heart. So when he experienced the curse of the law on the cross, it wasn't his. It was ours. It was ours. It was he who bore our grief. 
It was he who carried our sorrows. It was he who was pierced for our transgressions. He who was, who was bruised and crushed for our iniquities. And upon him was the punishment that brings us peace. By his wounds, we are healed. Isaiah 53, verses 4 to 6. Sorry for the spoiler, but we, we can't do anything but proclaim that spoiler from this pulpit, can we? The good news of the gospel is that despite all of our self-centeredness, despite all the ways in which we seek to rely on ourselves, and we seek to accomplish everything for ourselves, and even perhaps have an attitude at times of legalism, which, which we no doubt can have, despite those things, we read here in verses 13 and 14, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. So that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles. So that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. Hallelujah. What a message for these Galatians. Ignore the agitators and what they're telling you, my friends. This is for you because of him. So to finish now, what does verse 14 point us to? Well, it tells us that the love of Christ is wonderful. It is wonderful love. It is a love full of wonder. It is marvellous. It is beyond comparison. He was crucified to remove the curse. As Dave pointed us to this morning, the Lamb of God. The Lamb of God. Because of his love. Because of his love, the curse has been removed. And so because of that, we can receive the promise of the gospel. If you are not a Christian here uh, this evening, let me just slightly adjust verse 14 for you. As, as we read verse 14, we, we can change it ever so slightly. Uh, in, so that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to you. If you're an unbeliever here this evening, the blessing of Abraham might come to you. And so that you might receive the promised spirit through faith. That is the promise of the gospel. The blessing of Abraham as being made right before God, being justified, being made acceptable in his sight and according to his standards. It is to receive the very blessings that were proclaimed by the six tribes on the side of Mount uh, Gerizim. It was Paul's great concern to remind the Galatians that the promises of the gospel were there for them in Christ Jesus. It's our job this evening here in St. Melons to remember and to delight in these things. The blessings of God cannot come by the works of the law, but only through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. All of God's blessings come through faith in the crucified, risen Lord Jesus. So will you trust him? Will you turn to him for all your needs? Will you put your faith in him? And if you're a Christian here this evening, it is our job to dwell on these things seriously and to live them out in our lives, to proclaim the goodness of the gospel, the promises of the gospel within our lives so that those around us might be drawn to the goodness of the gospel 
And what a, what a comforting message it is to say to somebody, there is nothing that you can do to be right before God. All that you can possibly do is trust in Jesus. Jesus.